EAG. They're leading the game. What game? The M&A game. The data conversion game. The last 18 years, EAG has helped dozens of EMP companies expedite acquisition onboarding, including the conversion of systems and data, allowing operators to hit even the most aggressive of TSAs. A 90-day TSA? Sure. 60-day TSA? No problem. 30-day TSA? Crazy, aggressive, but EAG can help. EAG has a refined, proven process to help operators integrate acquisitions and is the undisputed heavyweight champ for your M&A integration needs. For more information, visit EAGServices.com. That's right, EAGServices.com. Welcome, everybody, to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. This is a, a little walk down memory lane for me. Uh, I got a phone call, or actually a direct message through LinkedIn, I think, of, hey, Chuck, how you doing? And I haven't talked to Sean in, God, I can't remember the last time we talked. When's the last time we talked? 15 years? Probably has been. I, I still think that I vaguely remember a Southwest flight, though, that I'm not sure when we were talking on the phone the other day that that you seem to recall. Yeah, I don't remember what we said, but it was just a high goodbye. I mean, it wasn't yeah. anything in depth. Yeah, no, that yeah, that's exactly right. You pro- you probably had some shitty property you were trying to pawn off on me. It's interesting that we never really communicated, but I always kind of in parallel kept track with your career. And now the big word is disruptor. And but before disruptor was a word, what I always kind of pictured you as your place in the business was somebody who was very irreverent. You just didn't give a fuck. And that was very appealing to me in this kind of stodgy private equity slash investment banking world that a guy like Chuck Yates existed it was refreshing to me well and i never pegged you for a stalker but uh, i guess it's kind of okay okay kind of kind of uh kind of fair enough there see so so do this uh walk through your background tell or do it this way hey how'd we meet yeah uh, that's a good story we met because we overlapped as rice undergrads but I don't think I ever met you at Rice. Yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't recall that either. You were a couple years what older. What college were you? I at? was Baker. Baker okay. ninety three. I was in. I was in Brown ninety one. Okay, you were way the yeah. heck out. Over exactly. There. All right, I shouldn't have touched that. That was. <laughs> so I never met you at Rice. Uh, I went into the Marine Corps for four years, active duty, post Rice. You went right into investment banking. I think. Stevens directly out of well college. I actually I actually did the the zig when I should have zagged because I really thought graduate uh, graduating spring of 91 I was going to be governor of the state of Texas oh, okay so I went to UT law school and okay. just figured out big thick book tiny print no pictures is bad and so I dropped out of law school after about three months 
Really? Yeah, I tell everybody, I had a semester of law school and my ex-wife used to go, you didn't even celebrate <laughs> Halloween at law school. Let's be real. So so I defaulted back into Rice Business School because you remember Rice undergrad. We were a lot of smart people, but they didn't prepare you for life, right? No. Yeah, it's like, all right, knock yourself out. So when and, and, and it was 80% guys, 20% girls, and the girls were all kind of STEM before STEM was a word. They were not attractive. I mean, <laughs> now, so be it, care, now be careful here. My mother is uh, a rice girl. Uh, My ex-wife, who is lovely and a delightful mother, there was rice some ex- girl. There was exceptions. I will my, grant my you two, that. My two sister-in-laws, rice girls. Okay. So, okay. I, fair, fair enough, though. Caveat well, it. Yeah. Well, exactly. let me let me ask you this: Were you ever at a kegger, just drinking a beer, looking around and going, "I'm just going to drink"? <laughs> I know you've done that, Senator. I can neither confirm nor deny any said allegations at this moment. Oh but man! Now, so when I defaulted back into Rice Business School, I figured out finance, and that was kind of the the. The political science, myth, power, value, doxy, market, you know, marketing slash with numbers. So it just kind of was my vibe. And then I defaulted into into investment banking at Stevens. So I would I joined Stevens in the fall 90s. of 94. Oh, 94. Yeah. yeah. So I was there a couple of years before I tried to recruit you. Yeah. So I got out of the Marines in 97, and I got my honorable discharge, which is an important piece of paper. I got out, and I just started smiling and dialing investment banks um, like David Lucian of Goldman Sachs. And, of course, he never took my calls or anything. But the thematic response is you're overqualified to be an analyst. You're underqualified to be an associate. Go get your MBA. And I was like, I don't want an MBA. Right. I want to get to work. Because I felt like I had lost four years in the business world having been a Marine. I, my right. perception has changed. But at the time, I had huge insecurities relative to being behind my peers. So I wanted a jobby job. Right. Uh, and then I called you up. You were at Stevens. You were in Houston. Uh, didn't have the baggage of Wall Street investment banks. Uh, ended up you know what I did you know what I did when I joined Stevens uh, because you know I had the weird background too right I go undergrad business school and I kind of got the same thing well you got an MBA but you don't have any experience you can't be an associate but you're too advanced to be an analyst and I was like no I'll just be an analyst and finally Stevens bought off on that and so I get the offer for Stevens because I said, hey, I'll do it in reverse. I'll get the MBA, then I'll do two years as the analyst, and then we'll we'll figure out where I am. And uh, what was funny about that is my mom was asking me about Stevens and said, no, tell me about this job. And I said, mom, it's so cool. They talk like I do. They don't talk like those Wall Street guys, mm. you know. So, And I think it resonated with you, my situation. You know, four years in the Marine Corps didn't really mean much in investment banking, but I was willing to be an analyst. I was like, you know, let's, you know, let's start over. Let's, right. Let's, you know, let's start me at ground zero. I don't care about titles. It's right. all about getting the experience, learning, and then making myself promotable. Right. Uh, so, so you gave me an offer, uh, which was my first offer post the Marines. In oil and gas investment banking, I'll always be grateful for that. 
But my fun, favorite story is you said, okay, Sean, let's, I'm going to go wine and dine you, and you, know, you don't have to accept till tomorrow, but uh, let's, uh, let me give you a ride in my car. And I was like, okay. So we get in your car, and you had a blue Miata. <laughs> And, and the audience has to picture this. Here's Chuck Yates, 220 pounds, all of them, <laughs> in a blue Miata. Pro- pro- probably a little bigger than that. Yeah, with the top down. And I looked over to him, and he was literally looking above the windshield <laughs> when we were driving. And I was like, where are we going, Chuck? And he goes, let's go ch- cruise some chicks at Rice. And I was like, oh, God. Well, I, I was married then, so did oh, you I really were? did I really say that? <laughs> it's it makes the story better. Sure, okay. The bottom the, line is we did it. The, the divorce there. settlement has been signed. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It can't hurt you anymore. So we were cruising around Rice. Now that did happen, and you're honking and waving at the girls, <laughs> and I was just like, okay, we're we're good here. Well. <laughs> You know, I would love to protest that, but I really don't think I get the only the only slight thing that I can add. And this is kind of like a major flex that I'm going to throw down. It wasn't a Miata. That was a Z3. That was the BMW Z3. Remember, that was Bond's car. Remember, Bond had the uh, convertible. Oh, now you're just you're just destroying my memory because it's so much better that it's a Miata. Yeah, that's fair. All right. (laughs) It was a Z3. Well, that's actually kind of a cool car. Well, it makes Needless it even to say, it you, makes it more pathetic. The women aren't waving back at me. Yeah, even though that, it's a cool car. That's a that's a fair point. But didn't we go to Two Rows over in the uh, village and eat dinner that night? Where did we actually wine and dine? Uh, two Rows in the village, and this was your demise because as you went to the head, uh, the restroom, I saw my college friend Steve Almerd. Oh yeah. And I went up to him, and he's like, what are you doing? Are you still in the Marines? And I said, no, I'm out. I'm looking for a jobby job. And he's like, well, what kind of job? I'm like, investment banking. He's like, I'm an investment banker. And I go, here's my resume. <laughs> oh, you've never fessed up to this. Yeah, and so the next day, I interviewed with Petrie Parkman, and I got a job. No, I Nice. Steve Almrud. Nice. I had not heard that story, and I paid for dinner. That's what I like. Yeah. Ah, that's all good. That's kind of shitty. Ah, whatever. So I'm interviewing at Petrie Parkman. Do you know Jim Parkman? Have you met him? Oh, yeah. He's a, He can be fairly cantankerous. He's old school Wall Street investment yep. banking, sharp elbows, does not tolerate fools lightly. So you know what my, my story was along that? We were having a meeting, and I said something like, yeah, what do you Petrie guys think? And he goes... Petrie Parkman. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, sorry, Jim. Petrie Parkman, what do you think? Oh, uh, and I, I got one more on that. I was in a meeting with Parkman, Randy King, and myself, and a client. And the client goes, uh, you know, so what is Petrie, blah, blah, blah. And Parkman goes, Parkman, Petrie Parkman. And Randy King looks at me and goes, and company. <laughs> That was hilarious. Uh, Classic Randy King. Oh, I love Randy King. So I was at Petrie Parkman. Last interview of the day was with Jim Parkman. And Jim looked at me and said, Sean, are you tough enough to be an investment banker? And I still had my high and tight Chuck. Oh, yeah. The The one blade. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, excuse me? And he goes, are you tough enough to be an investment banker? Can you pull... Three all-nighters in a row. Can you crunch 
tens of thousands of numbers without making a typo? Can you influence CEOs and boards of directors without getting nervous? Are you tough enough? And I was like, Jim, I hate to answer your question with the question, but will I always be warm and dry? And he goes, yes. And I said, well, this is going to be a fucking upgrade. Nice. <laughs> and he goes, you're hired. Ah, <laughs> oh, I like that. That's good bullshit. Hey, we have two things in common, I think, Chuck. Maybe others. But the first thing is we've always had the ability, the ability to talk our way into any situation. The second thing that we've always been really good at in our career, and it's a blessing and a curse, it's been a little bit of both, is we can sell anything to anybody. Yeah, that's, yeah, no, that's, uh, and, and I will say part of enlightenment over the last year, uh, in addition to, you know, being in quarantine and figuring out that maybe the Unabomber was just a little bit misunderstood and I kind of get the isolation, but using that power for good and not evil, I actually think is important. I mean that seriously. I've, I've had a lot to, because I never felt like fundraising at Kane. I ever lied to anyone and all that sort of stuff. But you did kind of feel like at the end of the day, you get your data and you build the story around it as opposed to here's the story and, and you know, what does the data show? Uh, it was tempting always. And, you know, you, I, I clearly did it in my career, and that is backing the truck up to the right answer. Boop, 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 boop. It goes right there. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. The, uh, you know, I'll, I'll fess up to this. We had one fund um, that I will say this, and this is Kane's data, so I have to be careful. A horrible vintage year fund. Uh, so literally the worst vintage year fund, but Kane's fund from that year is going to pay carry. I mean, it, it, it was, uh, you know, by, by all intents and purposes, relatively speaking, a great fund in an absolute vacuum. Hey, not a bad fund, you know, all things considered and, uh, and the like. But the thing about that fund is it had home runs and big losers in it. And so I'm sitting there staring at that data and we're out raising money and people are like you got big home runs but you got these big losses you know what gives is this just huge venture capital and the story was you know what it was by design i knew that i had these home runs so i started shutting down losses we could have gotten out of that we could have put more money in, potentially worked our way through those things. But why? When I know I have literally the three best assets in North America. So it was by design. I created all these losses just to get out of it and put every future dollar there. And maybe, maybe not. There was some thought of that during the time. But, you know, definitely, definitely you got to kind of think through, back the truck up, as you say. Clearly you're backing into the answer at some level. Yes. But. There was a modicum of truth, and really, that's all you need in this business. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so how long were you at Petrie? Uh, Twelve years, and then we killed the Golden Goose. We sold to Merrill Lynch in 2006. And uh, when I say killed the Golden Goose, we had ten guys in our Houston office, probably two or three 
who knew how to make money. I would like to include myself in that August group, but right. maybe not. Our last year there, just on fees, we didn't have a balance sheet. We didn't do any investing. Just our strategic advice alone, we brought in $100 million. I mean, no, no, no question, it was... It was Simmons and oil field service, and it was you guys and EMP as kind of the the uh, sort of standalone focus guys out there. I don't know if it's ever going to be replicated again at that scale. Yeah. I, I, I mean, particularly dollar per person. Oh. You know. Goldman brags about a million a partner. We were doing ten million for the whole a part, ten million for everybody. And that was all, I don't mean to throw shade at the Denver office, but that was all the Houston office. I don't even know what Denver did. Denver was a lost leader for us. They did research, sales and trading. They never made any money that I know of. And and I would never knock Tom Petrie. Oh, yeah. I would never knock Tom Petrie. But Tom had access to... Any board of directors he wanted to talk to. And he loved doing that. So he'd travel around and he'd have all this access at the C-suite, at the boards. And I was just, every time he got done with these meetings, I was like, okay, where's our business? Right. What, what did you learn? Right. Throw us a bone. And that was not part of his DNA. Yeah. He, it didn't, it didn't resonate with him that we actually wanted him to bring in a bunch of business Park, parkman no such trouble <laughs> i would i would imagine in terms of asking for business uh parkman got kicked out of several boards oh yeah and that affected and that affect that. that affected him and he stopped doing that and he kind of and then he went through a divorce he kind of checked out of the business Oh, really? He really did. Yeah. He didn't go to meetings very much. When he did, it it was a little bit of, oh, God, what's going to happen? Right. Like, we were in this one meeting, and we were talking, you know, know, private equity and private equity trends. And and this younger private equity guy goes, Jim, what about blah, 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 blah? And Jim looks at him and goes, are you giving me an IQ test? (laughs) And the guy was like... No, sir. He's like, good. I thought so. I was like, oh, that's the end of that meeting. You eye-fucking me, boys? <laughs> that's I mean, it. Wow. The, uh, <clears throat> now, the rumor I heard, and uh, yeah, confirm or deny or, or whatever, is I heard that you, know, you sold to Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch winds up selling to B of A all, you know, all through kind of the steps that at the end of the day when you are able to sell your stock and i mean you generically or anyone at petri i don't mean you specifically that in effect you wound up with like one year's bonus or something oh it was worse it was worse than that no was it really oh when we did the deal in 2006 all the underlings Actually, everybody except Jim, because Jim said, I'm not approving this deal unless I get all cash. So Jim is the only one that got all cash. Ah. We got all stock. $100 a share with a three-year lockup. By the time we could sell, Chuck, 
The stock was below a dollar. Oh, no. A dollar. I was just like, okay, I learned something here. Yeah. I learned something. So, yeah, one-year bonus. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe my analyst year, first year there. But I I will tell you, though, my last year there, I never argued and and fought for my bonus. I just thought, you know, the partners are going to take care of me. That's just kind of bad juju. Yeah, I mean, Mark DeVerka loved it. I mean, he would go in there and just pound. So this was the last year. I know we were being sold, and I went into, um, and I did a lot of soul searching, and I put together this big PowerPoint, uh, which investment bankers are so good at. And I went into Randy King's office, and I said, Randy, you know, and I started in my pitch, and he's like, da, 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 da. he's like, Sean, just tell me your number. And I was <laughs> like, I was like, what? He's like, how much do you want to make this year? And I, I, I was thinking, okay, think of the biggest number, Sean. Think of the biggest number. And I said the biggest number I could think of. And he's like, okay, you'll be paid that. Oh, he, he did the, you throw out the first number, you're going to lose. And I walked out, tears in my eyes, and I said, I should have asked for fucking money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I left money on the table. But that was a testament to Randy. He was just like, no, 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 Sean, yeah. what do you want? Yeah, that's awesome. And he, and he made it happen. Yeah, he he went to the he went to the mat for me. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I've always liked Randy a lot. He is the best domestic investment banker in oil and gas, where Southwest Airlines flies. I like that. I like that. The uh, no, and I love Bill Anderson, uh, his his partner. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the like, yeah, they're great. We uh, we used Anderson King on multiple things. Oh, really? Including the Treadstone sale. Okay. And uh, I don't know that I've ever told the Treadstone story on this, but we had backed uh, Treadstone, and we're this is the Fort Trinidad field and kind of let's call it East Texas, right? Um, and we bought it not from- not Haynesville. No, this is south of that. So, so think, 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 Buda, Glen Rose, oh, yeah, yeah, Georgetown, yeah, yeah. Cotton Valley. Well, we didn't have that. We had Georgetown, Glen Rose, and Buda, and our whole concept <clears throat> was go in and, in effect, do a Wolfberry vertical on this field. So, drill a vertical, commingle all three of those formations with a big massive frack on it, and. We spent 25 million bucks on that, and let's say the PDP PV10 was 12, you know, something like that. And there were four well bores there that were modern enough drilling that we could get the fracks off. Yeah. And the fracks were going to cost, call it five million bucks. So 30 million bucks. If it works, then sky's the limit. If it didn't work, you'd have some more PDP. You might have sold it for 15. So the thought was $15 million loss, and a, you get a test at this. So the first four wells we did literally paid out in two and a half months on the completion. I mean, wow. they were howitzers of wells, so we started drilling them. Well, what kind of IPs? I mean, we're talking I mean, like $5 million a day? Uh, we're, talk, we're talking, these were oily. Oh. So we're, and this is, we, we sold this asset literally in July of 2014. So, I mean... Couldn't have timed it any better, and I got a great I got a great banker story on on that one that I'll, I'll get to tell in just a second. But anyway, so we go from literally bought it at call it hundred barrels a day of production 
to 18 months later, we're at 13,000 barrels a day of production. Because we're just, we're just drilling these simple little verticals, commingling it all. We've got the, the whole thing going on. <laughs> so we go to sell this thing. We sign up uh, Anderson King. And, and as much as I like Randy, as much as I like Bill, the superstar there is John Dormer. Do you know John? I've never met him. Yeah. Okay. So he's kind of the the you know the the doer, as I like to say. And I always say, and I say this with love, John. Just on the off chance you're listening, <laughs> you don't want John solving the Kennedy assassination, but if you want someone to make every single phone call and you know bulldog down every buyer, John's your guy, man. Mm. He gets stuff done that I I'm like, sure, dude. Yeah, you'll get that done, and he always does. I didn't think he was that loquacious. I, he yeah no I mean he's got decent decent bullshit you okay. know right. but uh and just a, gr- a great guy but uh yeah. I love love John to death so <clears throat> so John's calling along Aubrey comes in I'm preempting this bad boy and you're like <laughs> that's your favorite word <laughs> I love it so we're on a call with Aubrey and it's about three weeks to bid date and he says man I'm preempting this thing my number is five seventy five. And Mike Hines and I thought if we got 250 that we were going to bust open the 82 Mouton Rothschild. And you had, you had like 50 mil in it? Uh, we didn't even have that. I don't think we I don't think we went I don't think we went beyond kind of the 25 or 30 million bucks we had in it, wow. you know. Uh, so may, maybe we Hold on, let me let me think about this. Uh, maybe we got up to 50 million cuz at some point we were drilling so we had to Put more capital in but anyway so we're we're like 580 holy cow that's great so we're playing it cool all right aubrey <laughs> you got to get us a markup of the psa we know we can do a deal with you we've done deals with you but times of the essence and so anyway aubrey was that was when he was, was doug the thug still there or? well this was not chesapeake this was post american this was uh what, what did he call it american energy Anyway, the, all the stuff with John Raymond yeah, yeah. that he was being backed uh, by EMG on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so anyway, I said, you got to get us a markup. And I think there was even a question. He was at that point trying to do, remember he tried to do a REIT that he was going to use for oil and gas PDP. And he was that. messing with that and something. So, you know, it kind of, we kept, we checked in, you know, every three or four days. Hey, where's the PSA? Where's the PSA? And just didn't get it. That's Aubrey going, don't you dare tell this story on me. <laughs> For the, the audience, if you couldn't hear it, I think that was the loudest thunder I'd heard in, in a while. Aubrey. Yeah, exactly. So we don't get, we don't get um, the PSA and bid date rolls around. And boom, Ooh, that's weird. We get an offer for six twenty-five, and it's like holy cow! And I technically can't say who from the a ma- company that had the money though? from a legit company. Wow. Uh, they, uh, I can't say the name of the company even to this day. But uh, who, were, did, who, who did the, your reserve report? Was it internal? Or? Bill Bill Anderson did it. Yeah, this is a wow, this is an Anderson internal or. And we had as many locations as you wanted. I mean, we were we kind of spaced them out. Ten acre spacing, five acres. I mean, yeah, something like that. You could just punch them down because it was they were not. I mean, you you. I think we may have uh, promoted puds at 
20 acre spacing but you could with a straight face say that you'll drill these on five you know i mean it was and so without without thieving without draining Oh, that's that's back when we didn't give a shit about drainage. Okay. Come on, man, <laughs> okay. dude, man, we're, right. we're we're in 2014, man. Okay, yeah, sorry. so yeah, so so uh, anyway, uh, we get an offer for 625. The company's actually going to do that's the buyer's going to do a 1031 on it. So they've got the cash sitting in the bank, and we were designated as one of the properties that they could 1031. So we're like, holy cow, we have these guys. And um, anyway, uh, so they said, here's our only deal, and we'll get to work on the PSA. We just want to send our environmental engineer out to see the field. And we're like, hey, it's all new drill drills, so we're good. It so is oil, though. It's oil. You know, they want to go see it. We're fine. Yeah. I kid you not, it had rained the day before, and it had rained the day before, and the engineer, God, <laughs> Aubrey's really upset about this. Yeah, you better stop. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're not going to throw shade at at Aubrey, to his his credit. But um, So anyway, the engineer goes out, looks around at this field, and comes back and says, it's just covered in oil everywhere. And our CEO at Treadstone, I mean, best guy on the planet. He's, you know, ex-BP, really thoughtful. He's horrified. He's like going, there's no oil on the on the ground there it's water i mean it 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 rained and so the rock is different color because it's wet but we haven't spilled any oil and so the the buyer actually kind of freaks out and we're like hey go get a go get a environment you know we'll, we're happy to let you do a phase one first and they said no 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 full we're, phase one yeah we were we were willing you know at that number it's uh, like sure yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah you can do a phase two i don't care fair point you know so um so anyway, we, we, they come back and they say, we're out. So the whole time, energy and exploration has been sitting there bidding, but we didn't think they had the money. Um, and so they call back and they were at, at this point, they were at 650. And we said, wait, from 575, you got them up to 650? Well, no, 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 no. This is, this is a third part, a third group. This is Hunt Pettit's uh, company. Remember, he was backed by HPS. HPS and a couple other guys. Man, this is crazy. Andy, are you hearing this? All the thunder? Oh, that's kind of cool. Anyway, um, so, no, this is energy. Backed by and, who? Uh, HPS. Uh, they were called Highbridge back in the day. Remember they were the... A debt group? Yeah. Oh. And they were a J.P. Morgan... Uh, entity that when banking rules changed, they kind of had to buy themselves from. And I think now they're called HPS, but it was Highbridge. So they were one of the debt providers to energy and exploration. And so anyway, Hunt's hanging around the thing and he's at, you know, 675. And we said, all right, 715 insurance. And he goes, okay, I got this. And so he signed up Credit Suisse and Citibank to go raise the high yield. They were going to do it all with high yield. So it was financed. It was a financed offer. It, it, yeah, finance out basically, but they were they get we get we had a comfort letter maybe or we we were at least on the phone with with Trauber and uh sure. <laughs> and uh, and oh god, what's the guy from Credit Tim Perry. So we're on the phone with those two and they go, "Man, we totally got this." So 
my kind of like coolest investment banking moment was Friday night at like 11 o'clock. Earlier that afternoon, we had said, Hunt, the deal's yours, but you got like three weeks. And he goes, okay, I got this. So he's going to go out with credit. So I get to send Tim Perry and Steve Trauber, who I, I like both of those guys a whole lot, but I got to send him an email that said, all right, boys, we we told Hunt to go for this. Please don't fuck it up. <laughs> that was like the, the coolest, I had to call my dad. Hey dad, I got to tell those guys, don't fuck it up. You know, so. And they took it seriously. They're like, okay. Exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so anyway, to his credit, they got it done and we closed at $715 million. What did you do with Aubrey during the interim? He had to be going crazy. Well, then he, yeah, he kept saying, well, I thought we had a deal. And I'm like, well, we never saw the markup on the PSA. And, you know, we kept kind of saying, hey, if you'll throw one in front of us that you're ready to sign. But I think it was something about the trying to do something with the public REIT that he kept dancing with. And so anyway, we just never, never got it done. But, uh. That's the uh, that's the Treadstone Anderson King story. So I'm a I'm a big Randy King fan. Did they make Did Randy make some money on that? That was a pretty big fee. We drank Camus at the closing dinner. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Only twice in my career had I ever seen Randy King drink wine or say fuck. Really? Twice in my career. Interesting. No. Okay. So so great story. I love reminiscing on when I love celebrating success there's just something great about it my last question on this topic to you is did Aubrey commit suicide so the the so the things I've heard anecdotally and I don't think I have a unique pipeline to any information that folks haven't heard I, I I've heard that there was a hit send on a text like, you know, a second before the that they've they've dug into the cell phone stuff. Sure. And he hit text. So I, I totally understand the you know, texting, looking up, going, Oh shit. So I, I get that. The I can't think I can't fathom that the optimist I knew through my whole career would commit suicide. Because, you know, if you think about it, the way I always categorize Oklahomans, and I don't mean this in a bad way, Oklahoma, please don't stop listening to, to, to my podcast, but Oklahoma, literally since the Dust Bowl, the Great Depression, was always about scarcity, right? Mm. You know, and I think Aubrey was the first person from Oklahoma that said, no, we can just make the pie a lot bigger, guys. And uh, and he was always just, you know, kind of maybe cynics will say, oh, he was a, you know, just typical stock promoter. But I always thought he was about abundance and he was always so optimistic that I'd be shocked that that if that he he committed uh suicide you know because i mean what jury in oklahoma was going to convict him of anything right you know so i wouldn't be worried about going to jail or or anything like that and i mean you know he you know i guess i guess at the end of the day when you're a cat and you have nine lives you never know when you're on life number nine but i mean he took companies bankrupt and just all that and just water off a duck's back right so i don't think so what do you think I do not 
think he committed suicide. I mean, I'm completely in your camp just knowing him, knowing his energy, his force of life, uh, the ups and downs he had been through in his life. And he always just comes out on top in terms of effervescence and enthusiasm for life. Uh, he in no way, shape, or form thought that, hey, my life is over. Yeah. That, that kind of patois would never enter Aubrey's mind. I, yeah. No I, way. Just yeah. no way. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And, and uh, even if, even if it did, you know, because everybody can have a dark moment. There's no, there's no doubt about that. And, sure. and self-doubt can creep in. I think there would have been a note. There would have been a message. I don't think it would have, uh, that he would have done that without, hey, here's why, or, you know, whatever. He would want to get the last say. That's a more eloquent way of putting it. Totally. I agree with that. Totally. Okay. So when did you leave B of A? Oh, after my three-year non-compete was up. Okay. And when I say I left B of A, I got fired. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> well, come on. You got fired by Kane Anderson. I got fired by B of A. Those are two different animals in the spectrum of reputation and credibility. Subsection 3, Part A of my non-disparage agreement allows me to say no comment. No, I'm kidding. I liked Kane. But, I mean, I like to joke about it, and so I will joke about it. But if you work at an organization with 300,000 people, if you tell enough people to fuck off, you will be fired. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little more complicated than that, but... Yeah, fair fair enough. I got to get that. uh, You can work at an organization of 10 and say the same thing. And yeah. So what'd you do after that? Because I don't... You know, I was looking in my phone when you called the other day, and I still had Director Merrill Lynch as uh, as your title. And uh, so I totally missed you leaving B of A. Yeah, I started my own firm, Mueller Chen, had a Chinese partner, a Korean partner, Australian partner, a couple UK, a couple in the US. Uh, We started out as purely an advisory firm, doing a lot of cross-border where it was Asian money with US content primarily, a little bit in the North Sea. Then it morphed into more merchant banking uh, where we would take a majority of our fee in stock or equity uh, in the transaction. Uh, and what I learned through that is we did $7 billion a deal, so that's not bad for, yeah. for, for seven years. Uh, but what I realized when we started getting hardcore in the merchant banking side of the business is you can't eat equity. Right. <laughs> you can't, equity does not pay the bills. Right. And so we had all these pockets of illiquid equity. Yeah. And it was just crushing us. It yeah. Was, and it wasn't fun anymore. Yeah. Um, and then the pandemic hit. And, um, you know, speaking of dark days and things kind of throwing you for a loop, it threw me for a loop. It kind of surprised me. But I got into this funk where I was drinking every day. And I, when I woke up, I started drinking. Yeah. All day. 
every day. Well, and that's why for months and months. That that's why I didn't when when quarantine hit, I actually like drew a hard line in the sand. I'm not going to drink. Mm. Because I I would have been right there with you. You know? I mean, and I was still working. I mean, it took it if if quarantine hit kind of what the second or third week of March, you know, 2020, something like that. I mean, Kane didn't fire me till late April, so I had a good six weeks there being in quarantine, but having a job. I would have drank all the way through it if I would have let myself. So you made the determination that if I was going to turn to booze, it would probably kill me. Oh, yeah. No question. So this was just pure self-preservation. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Knowing how worthless I am, yeah, I'd have gone right there. I mean, it... Because my issue with booze is not the everyday. If you told me, hey, Chuck, I'll give you a million bucks if you don't have any booze for 180 days, I'd be able to do that without a problem. It's glass of wine number two turns into glass of wine seven or eight really easy for me. Yeah. And sitting there by yourself, that would have been, you know, one bottle would have turned into two. So. And that was my problem. Yeah. I just, I did, I just couldn't control it. Yeah. And I was killing myself. So I just woke up one day and said, Sean, you're being stupid. You're killing yourself. I'm going to stop. Yeah. And so I just stopped cold turkey. Oh, good for you. Changed my diet, worked out five days a week. Uh, And most importantly, and I don't know if this makes a ton of sense, but I switched my business from oil and gas merchant banking to what I'm doing now which is more on climate, fighting the climate, climate change. Right. And we talked about this a little bit tangentially, and maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more, but that new business model gave me a new sense of worth, and kind. Of, and I don't want to get too touchy-feely here, but it reinvigorated. We can, we can hug it out. We're yeah, not that sure. far. We're not that far <laughs> apart. But no, It reinvigorated me. No, and I, to- I totally get that. I mean, oil and gas... It's just tough. I mean, it's shitty right now. I I had lunch with a with a guy I'd never met. He kind of hit me up through Twitter, and we were just talking about it. And he's like, "What is your advice right now?" And I'm like, "I don't even know." I mean, it's a it's a business that's gone from literally you can be rich in 48 hours. You hit a well, the Saudis embargo, and oil prices triple. To now, nickels and dimes matter. Yeah, that just sucks. Anytime yeah. nickels and dimes matter, it sucks. And it's not a respectable industry anymore. I mean, maybe that's too broad a brush. No, people hate us. People hate us. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's the ends justify the means. And even after a while, I was r- wrestling with that statement and trying to get out from under it. And I thought, and I thought, well, geez, oil and gas has raised billions of people out of poverty. And we get no credit for that. Um, and, and, and there's all these people bitching, and you know, it's American, you, you got your right to bitch. But do you drive a car? Do you use plastic? Do you fly on a plane? Did you run smack about me on Twitter that's powered by your iPhone? And yeah. I, I just, I, it's, I have a hard time of people being disparaging and hypercritical when they're just kind of hypocrites. Yeah. And, you know, you can't live off a grid. I get that. And we, and when we were talking the other day, Chuck, you said something very meaningful to me. The climate problem 
needs all hands on deck. Yeah. It doesn't need five people. <laughs> right. It doesn't need a hundred people. It needs it needs all hands on deck or we got some serious problems. And it's it's interesting because Art Berman and I were talking about this on he came on the podcast like three or four weeks ago. And I pushed back a little on art that, you know, the science isn't necessarily settled and all that. And art made, I think, the best point. He's like, yeah, but do we really want to risk it? And I think that's the fair point. I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, spewing carbon everywhere at least stinks. Okay, maybe it, it's not changing the whole world. Who knows? There's a lot of data that says we man has impacted the temperature, you know, and, and, and all. But... No, you're right. I mean, I thought that was the great point is, hey, do we really want to run the risk of that? Yeah, for our kids. Yeah. Our grandkids. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, no, so you've morphed your business. What's the what's the business model? Are you banker still? Or are you being a principal? What are you doing? Oh, no, I'm a principal. Uh, nice. I wanted to build something, create something, have something tangible. I mean, I've always been in the advisory business my entire life, which is just kind of watching other people build things and grow things and ring the bell. Stating the obvious with an air of discovery. <laughs> Investment <laughs> banking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just being directionally correct. Right. Sean. Exactly. Uh, Bing. So I wanted to start my own company, which I have. Researched it for about a year and... The title of this podcast is going to be Accidental Environmentalist because I want to be very clear. I'm not a greenie. Right. You're not going to see me with Greenpeace waving a flag trying to board an oil platform. <laughs> You're not going to see it. Every fiber in my body just wants to make money. Right. I want to make a ton of money. I enjoy doing that. Uh, and with, Well, hold on. Stop real quick there because yeah. is it... Is the ton of money, is it because it's a scorecard? Is it because it allows you to buy things? Is it, it allows certain life experiences? What, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking this question because I've been thinking a lot about this over the last year as well. What's the money thing for you? It's, it's definitely a scorecard. I yeah. mean, in investment banking and private equity, I mean, you, you know, you run out of titles. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean you don't have ribbons. Right. And you don't have hashes. What matters is, okay, how much money have you made? Yeah. I mean, that is the size of your big swinging. Yeah. And, and but the third thing resonated with me, too, is I want to have enough money that I can do whatever I want. Yeah. I want to be able to play. I want to do, you know, go on geologic safaris in Kenya. I mean, I want to do all these things, especially with my kids. Right. Um, I don't want them to, uh, you know, hit rock bottom and run out of money. Because uh, running out of money is really no fun. I mean, right. it's, it's, it's not. I don't care what people say. Um, but if you can handle money and control money and not it control you, I mean, money, money is a good thing. But it's a, it's a little bit of a badge. Um, but at the end of the day, I decided, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot my business uh, to something intellectually challenging to me. And that is climate change. And can I make a ton of money too? And it was not obvious to me when I started out on this 
research project. And, and after six months, I couldn't find a business plan that achieved those two goals. Well, and, and I'm going to add an asterisk to the make money real quick, because I think this is what you're saying is the asterisk was make money kind of in today's environment, right? So not a if 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 I build it, they will come type thing. Something that's that's real today is that is that kind of part of it? Because I think the problem I see with all the energy transition money is until China and India and the United States sit down and figure out who does what, getting rid of carbon, you're kind of throwing darts. And so that that's the element I've had in looking at that space. Uh, the way I think about it is for the first six months, I couldn't find a business plan that made money. I mean, it was all about paying more and getting less. Yeah. And that's un-American. Right. I didn't want to be a part of that. Right. Well, that's in- incredibly boring. And then, as entrepreneurs do, I stumbled upon an idea researched it for another six months and we're ready to go live where I could accomplish my two goals, which is materially help the climate, not just in a small way, materially help the, cl- the, the climate and make a ton of money with the business model predicated around paying less and getting more, which is American and something I can fully embrace. And I've seen a ton of business plans in my life. Right. Chuck, you've seen a ton of business plans in your life. This is literally, and I'm biased, of course, but this is literally the best business plan I've, been, I've ever been associated with. Well, what can you share with us? Yeah, it, the name of my company is Carbon Capture Methane Reduction. And at its simplest form is we're going to grow kelp. And kelp is an algae that grows in the ocean. Right. All kelp is seaweed. Not all seaweed is kelp. Okay. We're going to grow two different types of kelp. The first type is red kelp, Asparagopsis taxiformis, AT, red kelp. We're going to take the red kelp, process it, and feed it to bovines, which is a fancy term for cows. Okay. When you feed it to cows, they gain the weight faster, 20%, produce... 90% less methane, which is actually 30 times more harmful than CO2. Um, uh, So that's the red kelp. The other thing that we're going to do is grow brown kelp. And this is macrocystic periphyta. Uh, It grows in the cold water. It grows two feet a day. So it's massive. Wow. It's the same as red kelp. They're the two fastest growing organisms on the planet. We're going to grow these large farms, and by large, it's five acres, five thousand acres. Which, if you think about an onshore farm, that's kind of small. Right. But this is offshore, five thousand acres. Capture carbon, take it to the deep ocean, drop it, bur- not really bury it, drop it to where it goes to the bottom, and given the temperature and the depth and the lack of interaction with the environment, it effectively sequesters carbon forever and so so i mean photosynthesis right i mean that's how it's sucking the the carbon the carbon out of the air out of the ocean yeah. out of the, oh out of the ocean yeah. gotcha gotcha yeah. so oh okay i, I hadn't 
you know, I kind of had always thought it just floats on the top and it's sucking it out of the air. It's sucking no. it out of the ocean. It's out of the ocean, yeah. So how much how much of the the carbon that a that a car is uh, sitting there producing and spewing out? Do you have any idea how much winds up in the air and how much is in the ocean? Well, it all ends up into the ocean. Okay. The ocean is a huge carbon sink. And it used to be able to keep up just naturally with kelp and other seaweed, but there has been a big diminution in kelp and kelp growing. And it has a lot to do with uh, um, sea urchins. Sea urchins eat through the, the footholds of kelp, which means they kind of float to the surface and decompose. Um, and it also is tied into the sea otters. The sea otters like sea urchins, and we had problems with sea otters. It's all, you know, obviously linked. Um, but there's really no large-scale commercial kelp farming in the world. We're really going to be starting a new industry, um, which is pretty exciting. And if we think that what we're doing on both the red kelp and the brown kelp side and we get it to scale we could literally be doing removing a hundred million cars a year uh off the grid which is which is material yeah no that's that's real material because what are there i think there are 1.2 billion cars on the planet something like that so that's huge yeah the the red kelp if we feed it to just a million cows and there's a hundred million cows in the United States. There's a billion cows in the world. So just a million cows, that's going to take off three million tons of carbon equivalent off the grid. Um, and, and back to kelp. Kelp is 30 times more efficient than the same size of a forest on capturing CO2. And you, you go, well, why is that the case? Well, first of all, it takes a tree 30 years to get to maturity. Kelp takes six months. Yeah, two, <laughs> but if, two feet a day. Yeah. yeah. If you look at a tree, it's 80 to 90% bark, roots, branches, and then the rest is the leaves right. that photosynthesize. Right. If you look at a kelp, that baby, 100%, every part of it is geared towards photosynthesis. Right. Okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense because, yeah, the forest, it's only that top layer that actually does anything. That's right. To the uh, thing. So, I mean, who was, the, who was the person on the planet that said, this kelp, I'm going to go feed it to a cow? Have people done it, like, even in small scale, or is this... Are we going to walk out to the cow and say, here's dinner and have to leave it there for three days and hope they eat it? I don't know why they did it, but they did it in Australia. <laughs> of course. Uh, they have huge cattle ranches in Australia, and they don't call them ranches. They call them cattle stations. Uh-huh. Uh, but kelp, red kelp, AT, first originated in Tasmania. And so they took this kelp, somebody fed it to a cow, and it changes the enzymes in their rumen, their stomach. And instead of producing methane, the cow produces hydrogen. And so when it belches and toots, 
<laughs> it's hydrogen, which is a benign substance to the environment. But here's the best part. It is 20%, it, take, it requires 20% less energy to produce hydrogen than to produce methane. And so a cow takes all that energy and gets to weight 20% faster, which means it saves 20% on cattle feed, there's more cycle time, and there's less methane. This is my whole philosophy of doing more with less. I can go up to a cattle farmer and he's like, okay, so we have to pay a ton more to get rid of this methane? No, 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 no. You're going to have 20% less costs in feed with the red kelp. And they're like, okay, that's interesting to me. And how long have they been, how long have the Australians eaten cows that were fed red out of red kelp? I'm not sure if it's ever been done. Okay. Uh, but they have done a study on the red kelp and the cows and it's cows eat I don't want to be pedantic here but cows eat about 25 pounds a day of dry feed typically corn right or grass uh, the the amount of red kelp will be one to two ounces a day added to that so it's a, it's a dietary supplement it's very very small all to say the cow doesn't taste it, so he doesn't reject the food. He, he'll eat it, <laughs> and that's kind of a big deal. You, right. know, you want him to eat. Uh, but I think where you were heading with this, and I didn't want to put words in your mouth, but it's pretty important as the end product that it looks the same, it tastes the same, it has the same marbling. Right. I mean, nobody can tell. And they've done studies uh, in Australia Harvard's done a study here in the U.S., and UC Davis has done a study in the U.S. These, all these studies were just 20 head of cat, cattle, which is not statistically significant. Uh, I've commissioned the University of Nebraska, which in oil and gas speak is like the Nettle and Sewell, the Ryder Scott right. of the bovine nutrition world. Uh, they're going to do a 100-head study of cattle on... Will they eat it? How much methane's reduced? What's their gain to weight? Uh, and does it feel, look, taste all the same relative to kelp, no kelp? Well, I will feel a lot better by having the University of Nebraska do that versus UC Davis or Harvard. I mean, or, or somebody in Australia. I didn't want yeah. to have to explain this to a cattle rancher <laughs> in Nebraska. Right. So I said, we're going to do our own study. And it's going to be blue chip. It's going to be an industry leader. It's going to be five times larger than any other study. And once we have that document, uh, we're going to we're going to be. Uh, I'm not trying to be braggadocious here. I'm more worried about supplying the industry than the demand that's coming our way. Well, and so <clears throat> so to that end, how do you plant this, and how do you quote unquote pick the crop? Yeah, it's, it, it's really uh, vertical farming. And you mentioned to me vertical farming. You've had some association with that in your investment banking days. But we'll, we're going to put a line out 1,000 feet. And every five feet, we're going to have a 25-foot hemp rope with a cement block at the bottom hanging down. And from there, we're going to have holdfasts juveniles and spores 
all the way up and down this hemp rope. And hemp is great because it's very porous and they can anchor on that and grow from that. And that's gonna be one line. And then 5,000 acres is 1,000 lines. Uh, and then we, you put it out there. And the great thing about kelp farming, vice onshore farming, you don't have to water it. Right. You don't have to fertilize it. You don't have to provide pesticides. You don't have to have fallow fields. Uh, you just plant it and let it do its thing. And if you have the right temperature, nutrition, and pH levels, it's going to grow. And it's going to grow fast. And is it is it a seed or is it a strip of it? Like you've torn a strip off somewhere. What is actually being planted on the hemp on the hemp rope? It's like a it's like a pomegranate seed. Really? Yeah, they're like little seeds that just kind of go around the gas bladders, and the glass. I mean, so the parts of a kelp plant is the fronds. Okay. It's the stipe which they're attached to. It's the gas bladders that fill full of CO2, um, and that's where they store CO2. And then the holdfast, which is the bottom that they anchor on, and in, in the wild, they typically anchor on coral okay. or some something rocky in the bottom. Well, because we're vertically farming, it will be anchored vertically on these hemp ropes, and they will grow out horizontally. Now that's pretty cool. So, so I get the it's the red kale, and that's red kelp. Red kelp, sorry, that's kale. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's um, I'm helping you with marketing spin yeah. here. <laughs> Beat it into them. Beat, Beat it into. Them. But so that's going to be fed to the cows. The other kelp that's sunk to the bottom is that carbon credits, carbon yeah. offsets, carbon offsets. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, we built. I mean. You've probably read these stories about a Brazilian rainforest that Microsoft is paying 20 million bucks per ton, and all they got to do is don't destroy the forest. Right. That's our pact. Right. We're never going to be able to verify that. We, we don't even know if this place exists. Right. But we're going to pay you 20 million bucks a ton. Yeah. With our project, you can see it. You can verify it. You can measure it. Uh, we're going to have sea drones to watch it go to the bottom to show that it's sequestered. This is all going to be highly credible and verifiable to sell these credits, mainly to Fortune 500 companies. Well, and the thing I've always thought, to your point, that's bullshit is the, hey, I'm going to go build a factory. No, I'm not. Give me, you know, give me credits and I'll go sell those credits. I've always thought that bullshit. You're actually sucking carbon out and sending it to the bottom of the ocean. Absolutely. So that's like real. It's real. And then and then theoretically, if we do enough of that, the water is able to suck uh, carbon out of the atmosphere. Yes. Return to its kind of natural place as the I wanted to say sucker outer, but that doesn't seem like the right word. Probably need a new word for that. Yeah, I wouldn't lead with that. So, but, but you know, people say, aren't you worried about competition? Aren't you going to have pointy elbows? Aren't you going to have patents? And the answer, Chuck, is I'm not worried. The more, the merrier. I mean, think about this. For a 5,000-acre farm, for the rope, the hemp, the nylon rope, the hemp rope, the anchors, 
the 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 concrete weights. A five thousand acre farm is going to cost me a million bucks of capex. That's going to last fifteen to twenty years, right? And right. You, you don't you use it. You reuse it every time. Right. And each harvest, and I'm going to do two harvests a year because it grows so fast. I can sell. I can capture a million tons of CO two. Okay, so a million tons times twenty to fifty mil, twenty to fifty bucks a ton, is twenty to fifty million of EBITDA per year per yeah. one farm. Yeah, plus a first mover advantage. I mean, because sure. in, inevitably, inevitably, you're going to figure out how to do this. I mean, there are going to be slips on the way in terms of just anytime it's, you do it for the first time. I'm not taking a guy to Mars. I'm not, I'm not Elon Musk. <laughs> I'm farming kelp and dumping it in the ocean. The, uh, it's not that hard. How, how far offshore are you farming the kelp? Is this kind of we're going to get into a helicopter in the middle of nowhere? Or are we like sitting on the no, beach going, no. there it is? Yeah. Okay. It's going to be 10 miles. I mean, 10. I mean, we're looking for like 20 to 30 feet of water. Right. No, I mean, nothing big. I mean, we're not going to have to bury it. Um, we just need the right temperature, nutrients, and uh, pH levels. And here's the other thing, nice thing about kelp is if we, I don't know if you've heard this environmentally with the coral reefs. The coral reefs are in tough shape right. and they're degrading. Yep. And they're degrading because there's too much acidity in the ocean. Suntan lotion and all that good stuff, right? Well, let's keep with acidity. Okay. Um, and it's bleaching the corals and de facto killing them. Kelp loves to eat acid and lower the acidity in the ocean. And so if we put a big kelp farm, let's say by the Palancar Reef, uh, offshore Cozumel, uh, it is going to change the acidity in that part of the world to help the coral reefs. So that it's not bleached out white. That's right. Ah, good stuff. And fish love kelp. They swim in it. They swim around it. Kelp loves them because they poop. And kelp love to eat the nitrogen in... Uh, fish excrement to have a little more scientific I term. I like yeah. excrement. <laughs> um, so there's a symbiotic relationship, second order consequences that it helps the environment in numerous ways, which is pretty exciting about to be about. Well, and the other thing that at least I've kind of learned over the last, call it six months, because I think this gets worse every day is there is a whole element out there that actually opposes carbon capture because at the end of the day, they think it's extending the life of hydrocarbons, meaning hmm. we shouldn't even look at carbon capture type things because we should just get rid of hydrocarbon hydrocarbons today. There is a growing vocal community saying that that being said, the way to shut them up, because we're not gonna we're not gonna take our standard of living down. We're no. just not. Every generation has always had it better than the last, um, and you know, I mean, to to meet certain thresholds under the Paris Accord, we have to get to activity levels that were on par with a worldwide quarantine. You know, 
to at least all hands on deck. Yeah, exactly. And we're just not going to do that. I mean, there's there's no way we're going to do it. But I've always thought the best way to shut up this chorus of let's get rid of hydrocarbons is actually demonstrate we can get rid of carbon. Yeah. And that that's the thing that I think potentially you do, because I've had, you know, you know me, I love the X-Files and conspiracies. I mean, I get me going on the Kennedy assassination and we'll sit here all night. Yeah. But but I've often thought that our solution out of this is photosynthesis. God put it on this planet and the like. And the reason we don't have good sources for the data in terms of exactly what tree, planting a tree does is because maybe it would work, you know, and that maybe maybe planting a lot of trees would help enough that we could sustain hydrocarbons for longer. So the thing I like is that an accidental environmentalist is going to have the data on this to to make that argument. Yeah, no question. But you also have to act, ask yourself, and again, to your point, we're not going to live worse than our previous generations. That's just not in our DNA. We're survivalists. We're inventors. We're entrepreneurs. Uh What's the alternative to fossil fuels right now? I mean, it's expensive renewables, maybe. I mean, there's no clear path to um, getting ourselves, weaning ourselves off completely fossil fuels, just as there's no clear path to capturing all the carbon that has been produced uh, by fossil fuels. Right. We need both. Again, it's all hands on deck. Yeah. I mean, one is not going to denigrate the other. They got to be mutually beneficial. So we do this clubhouse room um, every Wednesday night. Jeff Davies and I do, and we usually have a we have a guest on and we talk about things. And Dan Pickering uh, was the guest, you know, probably about six or seven weeks ago, and he said something that I truly believe. And he said it much more articulately than I could is he said, hey, this whole move to less carbon is not driven by regulation. It's not regulatory. It's not the government. Sure, they want it. At the end of the day, it's being driven by consumers, investors, companies. You know, to your point, Microsoft did that in terms of $20 million for the forest, not because out of the goodness of their heart or anything. It's consumer driven. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's uh, that's a point. And just to elaborate on that point and bring it to more specificity as it relates to the cattle industry, uh, this red kelp methane reduction, uh, I don't know if this is the right magazine and maybe you've heard of it or maybe not, Connoisseur magazine, or and they put out lots of recipes. They came out uh, two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, and said, because of the methane emissions of cattle, we will not have any more recipes that contain beef. Yeah. And, I, and, and that's what you're saying is yeah, it's consumer. It's and, and, and what are the cattle guys doing? They have no arrows in their quiver. They have right. no way to reduce methane. Right. I want to bring that to them. Say, now you have the tools to say, okay, it's not 
no antibiotics. It's not grass-fed. It's not range-free. It's methane minimized. And it's not a big term now, but maybe in six months, you'll look in that grocery store and you'll see that big, thick steak that you want to eat. And on that label, it says methane minimized. And you know that this cow has been treated to reduce methane and you can eat that steak, you can enjoy that steak and still be carbon neutral. And that, no, that's exactly, <laughs> that, no, that's exactly, that's exactly right. Cause it really is. I mean, I have a daughter that's a vegetarian and it's driven out of two things, kindness to animals, which unfortunately we can't do, do anything about. But the, the flip side is it's driven by saving the environment. I mean, she truly believes Cow, cow farting and methane is uh, is destroying the planet. So, so it's exciting. Um, it, it you know it will materially. I mean, what I'm doing uh, to get it when when we get it to scale will materially help the climate. Number one and number two, there's a ton of money to be made, and I don't apologize for my last comment. There's a ton of money to be made because we all. We need all hands on deck, but we need the smartest guys in the room. The academic, the scientists, the entrepreneurs. They need to see that you can make a ton of money doing this so we can attract them to the business, to the industry. Because for the first six months, I started quoting myself as I investigated this business plan. I started quoting Kermit the Frog. It's tough being green <laughs> because I couldn't find any way out, any business plan that made money. And I'm sure some of our best and brightest have been turned off about the climate fight because they want to make money too. Right. I mean, we're not all greenies just trying to save the world. You need both elements. And that's kind of why I came on this podcast. I wanted people to know that, hey, you can materially help the planet. And make a ton of money. Well, you know what was interesting? What Pickering said also that night when we were talking about energy transition and less uh, and less carbon, said all the things about it being market driven. There was, of course, the obligatory discussion about, well, is this just a bubble? And Dan, I don't think I'm putting words in his mouth when he said, yes, of course, it's a bubble. And you're like, well, how do you operate within a bubble? It's you buy, buy, buy until it goes down and then you sell. And uh, to your point is a lot of money is being thrown that, but you couldn't find the profit ability in an investment. And that's what I love is the fact that you got a line of sight to it. You know, I mean, we're going to be a two billion dollar company within two years. We're going to be, I'm just going to predict this. I like it. We're, we're going to breaking be, news here. We're going to be the only carbon capture methane reduction company making money in two years. <laughs> Everybody else is going to be flailing. Oh, we need another five years. We need another More 10 subsidies. Years. And we, we need the largest of government to make this work. We need $100 million. We need a billion dollars, Mr. Government. We're kelp farmers. <laughs> we're laying our lines. We're harvesting. We're, 
feeding it to cows. We're dumping it in the ocean. Not dump. I hate that word. We're putting it in the deep water. That's it. And we're making it. We're gonna make a ton of money. That's awesome. Uh, I'm ex- I mean, I hope you can sense the enthusiasm in my voice because I'm really excited about this. Yeah, I really am. Yeah, no the uh, the the thing about you know, like you said, seeing a lot of business plans in your career, spending a year looking at it. I mean, the, this does not sound like you know. Oh. Here's the next thing I can go do. It sounds like you actually put a lot of thought and research into it. So kudos to you, man. It's exciting. It is exciting. Well, Sean, dude, you were awesome to come on. This was fun. I mean, I, I, I decided to do it on the first phone call with you because I know how quirky you are. <laughs> and I was like, this is going to be entertaining at the very least. And uh, at the very most, I might be introduced to some of your audience that I wouldn't typically come across. My mother and two ex-high school (laughs) girlfriends, so you'll get, yeah. Or drunk, naked, white guys. (laughs) Can't can't leave them out. Yeah, perfect. Um, So I'm glad to be here. I think this is an important uh, venue and, and platform for people to... Talk about whatever they want to talk about, as long as it's relevant uh, and interesting. Uh, and I'm I'm glad to be part of it. Thanks, Chuck. And how do people reach you if uh, they want to reach out, talk more about this stuff? My email address is s Mueller m u e l l e r at carboncapturemethanereduction.com. It's hard to get a dot com anymore. <laughs> you, you cool, got- Sean. You're great to uh, come on. Why don't we go eat tacos? Sounds like a plan. Thank you.